You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what He has to say in His Word. Well, once again, happy Father's Day. I don't think it can be said often enough that one thing the world needs more than ever is the presence of good fathers. You can look at all sorts of statistics to describe why the world is in the state that it is in, but at the top of the list would be a lack of good fathers who are engaged in the life of their families. And therefore, we praise God that there is one day out of the whole year that we celebrate the gift of fathers and really the critical role they have in promoting healthy families, healthy churches, and healthy communities. That said, some of you maybe came in here today not being aware of what day it was. And so as I have told you about what day it is, now you have a certain amount of panic because you're thinking, oh man, I should probably do something for dad, right? Well, if that's you, don't panic. I'm going to give you five ways that you can treat your dad today that will go a long ways in uh, making his day really great. Five things you can do for dad today. First, respect your mother. You probably thought it was going to start with dad, right? No. I mean, you probably heard it said, happy wife, happy life. You, if you're a kid, have a great way to influence mom's attitude. So, hey, make sure you respect your mother today, and, uh, and all the moms hopefully are saying amen. Number two, dads love hugs and kisses. They never get old, all right? And maybe you're not even a hugger so much, but guess what? Go give a dad a hug anyways. Uh, he will soar for the next two days. Dads can thrive off of that. Uh, number three, let dad use the bathroom today in peace. Simple. Maybe don't stand on the other side of the door trying to talk to him and knock on the door and get his attention. He will come out, and then you can tell him what you need. Uh, number four, dads like food. Of course, you, you probably know that. So want to make dad's day? Maybe get him that ribeye or, I don't know, his favorite piece of pie, whatever it might be, but help dad work on his dad bod. Number five, and this is especially for those of you if you don't live with your father anymore, but, you know, just make sure that you get a hold of your dad at some point today. Maybe it's FaceTime, maybe it's a phone call, but nothing is better than the gift of presence, and uh, frankly, being a dad is just hard. And there's plenty of times when dads feel like failures and they can think of how they would have done things differently. Uh, so it's just good to know uh, that, you know, even amidst those mistakes, God has used them. And so call your dad, let him know how you appreciate him, how God has uh, blessed your life through him. Do those things, and those would be great gifts if you've thought about getting something for dad today. And with that, now I want to invite you to turn open your Bibles to Matthew, where we're entering chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. And uh, 
How do you transition from encouraging people how to treat their fathers to a text like this? Well, it's quite simple today because here's the uh, fun thing is that as we celebrate really the earthly family, uh, we come to look at a text that is specifically focused on the family. Even if it be not on one's biological family, we are looking at a text that deals especially with the spiritual family. So, if you would, once you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 12, follow along with me as I read for us verses 46 through 50. Matthew writes regarding Jesus that while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mothers and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, if you've been tracking with us the several, last several weeks, then uh, one thing you might be thinking upon reading this text is, but how in the world did we get to this? This emphasis or this focus on the family, right? Because what have we been looking at? Really, it's been a whole lot of conflict in Matthew 12. And so three weeks ago, we looked at what we've been calling a Sabbath conflict uh, between Jesus and the Pharisees, where they accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. Uh, you might remember the scene. He was with the disciples. It was a Saturday. It was a Sabbath. They're plucking heads off of the wheat. And, uh, you know, the Pharisees see this, and they think that he's breaking the Sabbath because, you know, he's doing work. He's, uh, uh, they're, they're working because they're threshing out the grain and... Uh, and, and then another scene comes up where Jesus has a man with a withered hand in front of him. They're in a synagogue. Again, it's the Sabbath. And they're wondering, are you going to heal this man? Because, you know, if, if Jesus heals this man, then they think he's breaking the Sabbath. Again, in both these situations, Jesus, he confronts them. He points out their hypocrisy. He points out how they're actually breaking the law of God, not him. So that was the first conflict we looked at. Then we saw a source conflict where uh, the religious leaders accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And then lastly, we saw a sign conflict. Uh, and this was an interesting scene because even though Jesus has performed countless miracles in front of them, here they're asking for another sign. I don't know, uh, maybe a, a more clear sign in their minds to prove that he is indeed who he says he is as the promised Messiah uh, sent to earth from heaven. Now, I, I don't obviously no other sign could be given that would convince them, and Jesus points them out that, uh, you know, ultimately they're not going to get another sign outside of the sign of Jonah, which is a prophecy of what Jesus is going to do on the cross, where he is going to be put in the grave, and then on the third day he's going to rise again. So the, a lot of conflict in Matthew 12, and that's why it is significant. It's ultimately a turning point in Jesus' ministry where Jesus is now going to be opposed much more intensely than he has been, which will obviously reach its climax in his betrayal and his delivering over to the religious leaders where they will crucify Jesus. 
In addition to all these things, though, remember what else Matthew is doing in his gospel. He is continuing to reveal how people respond to Jesus. So we see his attributes emphasized by Matthew. We learn of Jesus' power, his authority, his compassion. Then we also see how people respond to who he is through the things he says and through the things he does. And so to this point in Matthew, just remember, we have seen a lot of different responses to Jesus, haven't we? A lot of different responses. Uh, certainly there are those who love Jesus. They are thankful for who he is. They can clearly see that he is a gracious and powerful Savior. Uh, they run to him with open arms. They are eager to follow him and be one of his disciples. But then you have others who are maybe indifferent to Jesus, still making up their mind about Jesus, on the perimeters as Jesus is performing all of his works and as he is teaching, still you know, coming up with a conclusion for who he is and what they are going to do, uh, what they are going to do in, uh, in light of who he is. So you see those who love Jesus, those who are indifferent to Jesus. You also see those who uh, are confused by Jesus. John the Baptist was an example of this. Uh, Jesus comes as the Messiah. John the Baptist is expecting he's going to be that political ruler. He's not. Uh, and so he sends his disciples to Jesus and he says, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And today, we also see another response to Jesus. And what is it? It comes from really a surprising source. It comes from Jesus' very own family members. And, uh, and with them in view... Keep in mind that even their response was a wrong response. But in light of this, we also see what the right response is again. And we get to see how Matthew wants us to respond to the person and the work of Jesus. And so as you think about today's text, here's one thing we are going to focus on. Really, we're going to look at three lessons about what it means to be part of Jesus' family. We're going to get some family lessons about what it means to be part of Jesus' spiritual family. So what are those? Well, I'd like to begin with this. Lesson number one, being part of God's family means this, that first you will be misunderstood. You will be misunderstood. For a moment, I want you to look at Matthew 12, verse 46. Matthew writes, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Now, we aren't given a lot of information in Matthew's gospel about why Mary and her sons appear, but the interesting thing is that Mark in his gospel does in Mark chapter 3 in verses 20 and 21. So for a moment, I want to read you some of these verses from Mark that we can get the backdrop of this. Mark writes in verse 20, Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they, being the disciples, could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. So Jesus own family members think what about him? 
They think he's crazy. Maybe you've had family who think you are crazy. Jesus understands. Jesus gets it. Jesus was not fully understood by those closest to him. And why? Jesus is he's busy. And he's so busy, he doesn't even have time to eat. Moreover, we have to assume that Jesus' family members are aware of the rising conflict, the escalating conflict with the religious leaders. They are concerned on all sorts of levels for Jesus' well-being. And if this doesn't make sense to you about how misunderstood he was, then keep in mind that one thing it's clear from Scripture that is that at least at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus' family members did not believe that he was the Messiah. Did you know that? They did not believe he was the Messiah. For a moment, I want to invite you to turn over to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, where this is illustrated very well. In John chapter 7, we notice in verse 3, where his brothers say to him, they say, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. So keep in mind that we are in John 7, a year or two years after the events of Matthew 12. So at this point, Jesus' family members are really aware of everything that he has taught, and most certainly they are aware of the, the, the following that Jesus has. And, and they think he's out of his mind again, and there seems to be even in their statement here an air of jealousy and indignation, doesn't there? And what they're ultimately saying here is like, Jesus, if you are, if you are a Mr. Big Shot, as you claim to be, the Messiah, then why are you doing all of these miracles and these workings in private and isolated and secluded areas? I mean, if you are truly who you say you are, then here's what you should do. Just go to Jerusalem. Show yourself to the whole world. All of this was sarcasm. And again, we know that because we're told they don't believe who he is. The interesting thing as we look at our text, though, is that Mary is also present, right? And so we go, well, what is she doing with her sons? And what I have to think is that she's with her sons because even though she believes that Jesus is the Messiah, she has been given divine revelation uh, who he is, she still has, I guess, the natural instincts of any mother, right? And, and she's concerned. I don't know, maybe, maybe you've had, whether it's your spouse, whether it's a parent, right? But you're so busy that, that finally somebody says, like, are you going to take time to eat? Like, you're not taking care of yourself. Like, maybe slow down, eat a good meal, take some me time, I don't know, self-maintenance. And, and she's worried about Jesus because she sees how busy he is and how active he is. So she's with her kids and, you know, she's, she's going to go with them to uh, see Jesus. 
But understand what this is then. This is an intervention. That's what this is. This is an intervention. And so Mary and her sons come to a house that Jesus is teaching at, and it's completely surrounded by people, and Jesus is in the midst of a very intense time of teaching with his disciples until suddenly, what happens? Somebody walks up to Jesus. I kind of like picture this is what's going on. They tap him on the shoulder, and they say, um, Jesus, uh, just so you know, uh, your family's at the door, your mom is with them, and she wants a word with you. Very noticeable, though, right, that this, this teaching time has been interrupted. I don't know how you would respond in this situation, but I can tell you how I would respond, and I would, I would, I would say, okay, I better go talk to mom, right? Mom, we want to be happy. I encouraged you earlier, a good gift for dad is respect your mothers, right? Like, okay, I'll, I'll go and I'll talk to mom. Is that what Jesus does, though? Not at all. He just keeps on teaching. And not only does he keep on teaching, but now he's using, he's going to make an example of his mom and his brothers. As he stretches out and he says, well, who is my mother? And who are my brothers, my sisters, right? And you say, well, how is this, how is this the case that he does this? But I think it's easily explained like this. You see, Jesus knows that his mother, although he loves her and he respects her, she is out of line in her thinking along with his brothers. This intervention should not be happening. And, and one thing they need to realize is that although Jesus is related to them by blood, they need to let go and understand that he has come for a divine purpose and ultimately he has an authority greater than he, him that he submits to. And it's no earthly authority. Primarily, it's a heavenly authority. It is an authority of God the Father. And he comes as the Son who willingly and freely and obediently submits to that will. Friends, I want you to understand just how unexpected this is, that this happens. And I want to emphasize that ultimately what Jesus does here is he prioritizes spiritual relationships over earthly relationships. And so that's actually our second lesson today, that if you are a part of God's family, then this is what you will do. You will prioritize spiritual relationships. Again, think about how big of a shocker this would be for Jesus to have done. After all, when it came to people's personal identities, they thought about themselves in three primary and fundamental ways, which was by their bloodline, their gender, and their location. In other words, these were the things which mattered most to people within society, what family they were born to, what sex they were born as, and where they grew up. The funny thing is that things haven't necessarily changed that much, have they? Still today, we often think of ourselves in terms of these physical or societal realities. Maybe some of you 
You put a lot of stock in the college that you graduated from. You think of yourself as a citizen, I don't know, of Fargo, and that means a lot to you, or of Castleton. You think of yourself in terms of the degree that you got, or the job that you have. Certainly, we still see a lot of pride in the family that you belong to. But Jesus, he cuts right through all of these identity markers, doesn't he? Because what does he remind even his own family members? He reminds them about the supremacy, priority, and eternality of spiritual relationships. And keep in mind that this was not only to shape how they thought about each other, but most importantly, it was to shape how they understood their own relationship with him. You see, Jesus' family had blinders on. And they were so accustomed to thinking about their relationship to Jesus in terms of blood relationship. But in this moment, think about what Jesus does here because he makes it clear that this attitude and this perspective they held needed to change because even his own family members needed to trust him as their savior, didn't they? No differently than anyone else. So think of it this way then. You see what's happening here? This is an evangelistic appeal, not only to those in the room and to whom Jesus is teaching, but to his very own family members as well. That said, if you think that Jesus at any point here is being disrespectful or if you think he is speaking about the importance of family commitments, then you don't understand this text. And never at any point does Jesus speak against family commitments, but the fact is that this much was assumed within society. And even more, it would become clear by his own teaching and his own actions that no one cared about the family more than him. For instance, think about Matthew 15. That's a text we haven't come to yet. We'll get there soon. But I want you to reflect on this reality that Jesus actually confronts the Pharisees because they neglected God's law in regards to honoring their parents. And Jesus says to the Pharisees in that text, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, and he's going to give two commands here, for God commanded, first, honor your father and your mother, and secondly, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. The two commands from the law of God. But you say, the Pharisees said, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he needs not honor his father. <clears throat> so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. So here's the sense of this verse. They were supposed to be using their money to take care of their parents. But instead, they said, well, I, I have this money I have to give to God, so I, I can't help take care of you. So they prioritized God they would have said in their minds, but neglected their earthly family commitments. And Jesus rebuked them for that. So we see that Jesus stands for the family in his own teaching, but moreover, we also see the same commitment 
As we look at one of the last acts of his life on the cross, consider John chapter 19. You, you think like, uh, of all things that are on Jesus' mind in the dying minutes of his life, what are they? We see that one of them is a concern for his mother. We read in John chapter 19, verse 26, that when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So Jesus is on the cross. He's on the cross, and he's looking out at his mother, and he's wanting to make sure she is cared for because she's a widow. And so he has the apostle John take her as his own mother, adopt her into his family, that he would take good care of her. It's amazing. So you have a responsibility to care for your biological family. We're not speaking against that in any way this morning. But the fact is you also have a spiritual family too that you need to think about and care about too. So let me ask you this morning, how are you doing at that? How are you doing at loving your spiritual family and loving your biological family? Because the fact is that we are called to do both and never compromise on either of them. If you're not sure how to answer this, a couple of questions could be asked, such as, how often do you meet up with other Christians during the week? When you put together your schedule and you look at the calendar, how much time is being spent with your earthly family? How much of it is being spent with your spiritual family? Hopefully, there's a combination of both. Obviously, we kind of expect you're going to spend most of your time with your earthly family. So really, I think the emphasis, especially for us this morning, is how much time are you spending with other Christians? How many uh, hours are you spending with other church members, other Christians, meeting together for prayer, for encouragement, for fellowship, for studying the Bible? common fixture in your life. You look at the early church and you can't help but notice how believers were devoted to one another. Church on Sunday morning was not enough for them. Their hearts longed to be gathering with the people of God. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to the breaking of bread among themselves. They shared meals together. So let me ask you, aside from Sunday morning, do you prioritize meeting with other Christians? Is that an intentional part of your life? It's supposed to be. It must be if you are going to be faithful in doing what God wants you to do. That said... And in fact, this is where things get touchy. But if we are to place a higher priority on one of these over the other, then which is it to be? Shockingly, Jesus says the spiritual family. And this is obvious 
to us if we've been looking in the Gospel of Matthew and following along in our study, because what is one thing we noticed in Matthew 8, verse 21? But we come across a text there where Jesus is talking about what it's going to mean to follow Jesus as one of his disciples. And the interesting thing is we discover a few things that are going to prohibit or prevent people from following him. Among those things, though, what is one of them? We're told that one disciple says to Jesus, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now this, I think, is a unique situation. Jesus is inviting this person to follow him, literally follow him, walk along a path with him, spend the nights with him, all this kind of stuff. We don't know exactly what's being going on here. Some think that uh, Jesus is waiting around for, this is just his way of saying, I'm going to wait around until I can collect my inheritance, right? But if I, if I go with Jesus, then it's, there's a chance, like, my, my parents die, my father dies, and I won't be there when they start divvying out the assets, right? Scholars agree, though, that one thing is probably not happening is it's, it's not actually talking about someone dying as though they're in the act of dying, okay? It's just kind of a smokescreen. It's an excuse. Nonetheless, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, then your loyalty to me needs to surpass any loyalties that maybe you have on earth and certainly must surpass any concern you have about getting rich and wealthy. That's not the only place we saw this radical call to follow Jesus either. We saw it especially in Matthew 10, verses 34 through 39. And Jesus said, Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Then he says in verse 37, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Friends, a call to radical obedience that we would think spiritually about our relationships. First and foremost with God, but secondly also in terms of our relationships with each other. And this is so critical because the fact is that the moment you choose to follow Jesus, there's no guarantee that you're going to have an enjoyable family experience on earth, right? It could lead to your utter rejection. Thankfully, not many experience that as much in our culture, but I can tell you it's especially prevalent when you get into Muslim-dominated communities. To follow a different God than your family is to walk away from your family, in a sense. Even in America, though, there will always be a rift the moment you turn to Christ and your family does not belong to Christ because you have a very different set of commitments and priorities, don't you? So friends, where must our allegiance be? It must be to the family of God. We have a bond that is closer than blood. We really do. And it is through the work of of Christ, his supernatural work on the cross that unites us together and makes us one. 
We are made one in a way that we aren't one, even with earthly family members. Sometimes we get a beautiful glimpse of this, though, from time to time, don't we? That's one of the reasons we love that uh, our friends from Michigan, First Baptist Church of Farmington, are coming over the second week of August to serve us. And I don't know if you've looked at the second week of August, but I would certainly encourage you to mark that week on your calendars. And if you can, come and participate with us in the things that we're going to be doing that week and serving the community because it's such a joy to get together with other Christians from other churches and other locations because you get this, you just immediately have a love for one another. And it's like, you just know that you are putting your hope in the same place and that you're you're there for the same reasons and you have the same purpose because of what God has done for you through the work of Jesus Christ. It is a supernatural act by which we are brought together into this family. That being in mind, we must understand Scripture uses a wide range of metaphors and images to describe what the church is like. Think of all the images. The church is called branches on a vine, it's called an olive tree, a field of crops, a building, a new temple with living stones, even God's house with Jesus Christ himself being the builder of the house. But no image, I dare say, is more prevalent than the church as a family. No wonder then why, as you read so much of what Paul says, we see the words brother and sister being used so frequently. Paul regularly spoke to the church family as brothers and sisters. One of my favorite illustrations of this is to be found in 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul says to Timothy, he says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. One of the things that ought to mark our lives is a affectionate concern for one another as fellow followers of Jesus Christ, as fellow family members. So, lesson number one this morning again, if you're going to be in God's family, it means you will be misunderstood. Lesson number two means you will prioritize spiritual relationships what is lesson number three? Third, you will obey the will of God. You will obey the will of God. I want you to look at verse 30. So what does it say? Jesus says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It's clear that Jesus is not at this point teaching salvation by works nor is he suggesting that one can earn their salvation if they do enough good things, but rather what he does is gets to the heart of what true saving faith is. True faith, saving faith, is a faith that produces a fruit of good works, a lifestyle of good works. Doing the will of God is evidence that one is part of his family and truly saved. They don't commit themselves to good works in order to merit God's favor and his kindness, but as a demonstration that they genuinely want to follow 
the Lord. Therefore, think of it as this, that this is ultimately the heart of someone who follows Jesus. They wake up in the morning and they ask a simple question. God, how do you want me to live? How do you want me to live? And then what do they do? They open up their Bibles, they pray for an obedient heart, and they seek to do that which they read. It's that simple. That is what defines a true child of God. And we should expect that this is the case, right? Because in our salvation, what happens? God literally transforms us from the inside out. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Friends, becoming a Christian isn't a slight modification of your behavior, and maybe you add in a few extra activities and you start showing up for church or what have you, but it is a fundamental reorientation of everything you desire, of everything you think, because God gives you a new heart. He extracts the heart of stone that you're born with, a heart that's insensitive to the things of God, a heart that doesn't care about what God thinks, and he gives you a heart of flesh where suddenly you feel what God feels, and you begin to think what God thinks, and you certainly think about your life from his perspective, all of this happens. God does heart surgery in our lives, and we are changed by it. And this is held out and seen in so many places in Scripture. We could think especially of James chapter 1, where James writes in verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer uh, who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If you're not an obedient person, again, just think of that picture. You look in the mirror, you're taking stock of, I don't know, things you would like to do to your face to improve upon what's there, I don't know, and you walk away and you totally forget. James later says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You see the contrasting of two different kinds of faith. A workless faith and a working faith. If you believe in Jesus, you have a faith that works. You have a faith that works. So let me ask you, do you have a faith that works? Do you desire to honor Christ with your life? Becoming a Christian and living as a Christian, it doesn't mean that you're perfect. But it does mean you're striving for perfection. A helpful way to think about things is it's not about perfection, it's about direction. Think about that. It's not about perfection, it's about direction. Is the direction of your life heading in the direction of Jesus Christ? He invites us into a relationship that is completely based on his grace. 
We don't deserve his mercy. He don't, we don't deserve his kindness, but he gives it to us as a gift. We do nothing for it. In response to that great gift, though, what demonstrates that we have received it, that we are in amazement over it, that we love it, that we turn from our sin. Anyone who uses the grace of God as a license to do whatever they please, it just displays that they don't actually know Jesus. And so they'll be no different than the people who will one day stand before him and they'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do these glorious, wonderful, awesome things in your name? And, and yet what will be the response? Depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. We're so fundamentally transformed that it's just fitting for us to think about all the ways that this has come out in Matthew's gospel. I mean, as John the Baptist was baptizing people, he sees the religious leaders stand off on the side, and what does he say? Who told you to flee from the wrath that is to come? And then he says, but this is what I tell you, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And that's to say that true repentance is a repentance that keeps on repenting. There are even times as a Christian that you repent for your lack of repentance. It, you, re, you repent from your half-hearted repentance. This is the life that God calls us to. And even in the Sermon on the Mount, that's what we love about the Beatitudes, right? Because what do we see in the Beatitudes? It is a reflection of the supernatural, again, work of God in our lives. Blessed are who? Blessed are the poor in spirit. That is to say, blessed are those who see themselves as spiritually bankrupt and in need of God's grace. They come to God with nothing uh, by which they can say, well, look at what I've done for you. No, they know they are without hope if it if it, apart from the grace of God. Blessed are those who mourn. They mourn because they mourn their sin. They mourn because they mourn how they have failed God. They mourn because they know what his standard is. They know how they fall short of that standard. Blessed are those who are meek. They look away from themselves for hope. They are not self-sufficient. In any way, they look for sufficiency in Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, they long to do what's right. They know they fail at it. They know they miss the mark, but they want to do what is right. Blessed are the merciful. They display mercy to others because of the mercy that they've received. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They finally understand the truth of God's word. They have seen the glory of the risen Lord and they want to honor him in their thoughts and desires. Lastly, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. They want to live lives of peace in every relationship and everywhere they go. And this is just one of many places that we can look at to show if you follow Jesus, your life will be thoroughly transformed. So let me ask you this morning, has it been? Or are you still living with an obstinate heart 
in utter rebellion against the Lord. When you look at God's law, is it inclined? In God's word, are you inclined to want to follow what God has for you? If not, dear friends, repent, for the wrath of God is coming. And there's only one hope in the world by which we can avoid this judgment. And it is through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for sinners. And here's the beauty of this, friends. The offer of salvation is here. It's here today. It was here last week. It will be here for as long as you are alive, but do not bank that you will get to see a long future. That is the great sin, isn't it, of not trusting in Christ. Some people think to themselves, well, one day I'll do that. I don't need to do it today. Maybe one day I'll make a change. No, today could be the day of salvation. Do not presume on God's patience. Do not presume on his kindness. Paul says in Romans, for it is his kindness and patience that leads us to repentance. God is supremely patient and merciful, but dear friends, one day you will die and you will have to give an account. And on that day, only one thing will spare you from the wrath of God. And it is whether you have repented of your sin and believed in Jesus Christ or not. Which will it be for you? Which will it be for you? I hope and pray that you would trust in Jesus. He has willingly given himself, like joyfully given himself to be your savior on the cross. He didn't go begrudgingly like, oh, I've got to do this for sinners. He went there to purchase you as his own so that you could be adopted into his family and ultimately that no matter what your experience has been in life, whether you've had no dad present, whether you've had really a bad dad present, that you would actually have a perfect father. Dear friends, make today the greatest father day, Father's Day that has ever existed by believing in Jesus Christ so that you would be adopted into God's family and call God your very own father. And in doing so, what also happens? You become related to Jesus. Notice in this list of things that what Jesus says. He says, and who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? He doesn't say father out of all those terms, does he? And why? Because there's only one father, only one supreme father, and it is God the Father, and he can be your father today if you believe in Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.